This is an audio recording of the Lendit Fintech Weekly News Show. The show is streamed live on Lendit TV, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter at 5 p.m. Eastern Time every Thursday. In this fast-paced show, the Lendit News team and a special guest discuss the most important fintech news stories of the past week. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Fintech Nexus Weekly News Show. My name is Peter Renton, Chairman and Co-Founder of Fintech Nexus. Joined this week, um, Todd Anderson actually had a baby yesterday. Well, his wife did, to be clear. Um, and uh, they, so he is out of action right now. Uh, everyone's doing well. A beautiful baby boy was born yesterday morning. But uh, in his place, we have our editor, John White. How are you doing, John? Very well. Thank you for having me back. My pleasure. And our special guest today, Jonah Crane from the Claris Group. How are you doing, Jonah? Doing well. Thanks for having me back. Okay. All right. So let's get right into it. I think the biggest story of the week really was um, Governor Brainerd's um, discussion or presentation that she gave um, talking about FedNow. And uh, FedNow is sort of was announced several years ago, was had a 2023 timeline, and we hadn't really had any idea of whether that timeline was going to be met. Now it, it looks like it, it is going to be met. At least the, the Fed is going to be ready between May and July of next year. And this is basically um, instant payments, this, the instant payments via the Fed. Now we've had the instant payments via the Clearinghouse's RTP network for some time, but uh, not every bank is involved in that. And the Fed now has or will have their own offering. Uh, we got we got two stories on this. So first, let's just um, let's just talk about the the announcement from Governor Brainerd. Um, I know that you've been following this stuff at the Claris Group, Jonah. What are what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think the the biggest takeaway is just that the Fed has you know made concrete progress here um, and has really set out a timeline or, or or something of a deadline for themselves in terms of actual launch. I think. You know, we'll have to see what actual launch means. I think I was, it seems like they're a little farther along in testing and piloting than, than maybe some folks on the outside believed. And so maybe the launch next year will be a true launch. I think some were speculating that, you know, maybe a launch in 2023 really meant um, sort of a pilot. So mm-hmm. we'll have to see. I think um, there still seems to be a lot to do. I was most struck by the fact that the Fed really seems focused on getting banks uh, getting banks themselves moving uh, in terms of their preparation and, you know, really in- inviting them in different ways to pilot and test. And um, they seem to really be urging adoption, which I think is, you know, going to be a big question here is how hard does the foot that does the Fed push towards, um, you know, adoption of, uh, of their network. Um, and they seem to be making a pretty hard push. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. John. I was shocked that there was, some kind of significant progress marked and uh, oh you have little faith you have little faith yes (laughs) as the resident skeptic of the news team um having said that it's it's will be interesting to see just how what kind of response this this creates uh, among the major players and and if there's going to be um we're going to see some more big announcements for funding for infrastructure partners Mm -hmm. in this space as they sign partners and, and get going. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, uh, that will be interesting to see indeed. So, so our, our second story combines with the first story, and this is the American banker saying, the Fed wants banks to prepare for Fed now, but many are in no rush. And and just to be clear, like RTP, um, the clearinghouses already existing, running real-time payments network, is has 18 large banks, 250 small banks. The pilot with Fed now so apparently has... 120 banks, um, including U.S. Bank, which is it sounds like they might be the largest of the of the banks in the pilot. They don't we don't know, um, but because uh, what's what's going to happen is the Fed's going to have to connect to it, right? And so the banks have to put in some pretty significant IT investment. They've many of them have already put in that investment into the RTP network, uh, but this is the Fed, so it's. Um, you know, it, it's going to be it's going to it's going to be interesting to see what how much effort banks put in. What are, what are your thoughts, Jonah, on that? Yeah, I think there will be a core of banks that want to participate, um, and others who will be in wait and see mode. And the same was true for RTP. Um, you know, I, from what we know now, it appears that the pricing is going to be quite similar, and so there's mm-hmm. not a huge incentive to jump into the Fed the Fed Now program. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if if either our you know RTP or uh, or the Fed decides to change their pricing, and that would provide a pretty big incentive. You know, I think one interesting fact in these stories is you know that the Fed is not going to make Fed now interoperable with uh, the clearinghouses program, and that that will present some challenges from an adoption perspective. I think, um, and it's also sort of interesting. For me, policymakers have made a big deal about the fact that they think stable coins, for example, should be interoperable. And yet here, here we're launching uh, the first major public uh, public option, if you will, for real-time payments, and it won't be interoperable. So um, that'll be interesting. But I, I suspect, I mean, again, I, I was most surprised by the fact that there were that many banks sort of actively participating in testing and piloting 120. And that, that suggests to me that they're there is some demand out there. Um, and, you know, I think demand from community banks in particular was a large part of why the Fed was focused on this project. Right. Right. John, any thought, any comments? I, I'm just curious. Um, the idea that a lot of the smaller banks are going to be doing the wait and see approach and wondering if that's going to put them at an advantage or a disadvantage. That's, yeah, that's, that's what the- I'm wondering. That's the big question. I mean, if uh, I mean, I, I, like it sounds like if you don't have the the IT capabilities, you're going to be. Um, I mean, it doesn't sound like there's it's urgent, right? And so I think you're going to launch with. You know, they'll be launch, like they've got 120 banks and and apparently some non banks as well doing uh, the pilot. Um, U.S. bankers said they're going to work. They're they're working with it. They're they're a member of the RTP network. They're also piloting Fed now. They say they're going to try and make them interoperable at us bank which i think that'll be interesting right if you have some banks of interoperable and some not that's going to be a mess in and of itself that'll have to be worked out but it's a case of the you know, some of the community banks i think it doesn't sound like it's going to hurt them much to to wait and see and um but eventually if these big guys are ever if, if, if the consumers are suddenly all getting real-time real-time payments um, happening and that becomes the expectation, then there'll become some pressure. But I know I don't see that happening for a while, right? Joni, do you, you agree that the, the pressure for real-time payments is not, it's not imminent or it's not, it's not really strong right now? Yeah, I mean, there are some use cases for which real-time payments are 
really important. There are others for which they're not. And so I think, you know, there is, there is some upward bound on sort of the, the, the demand for true real-time payments. And I think if there are options, whether it's at U.S. Bank or otherwise, to have interoperability between the two networks, that what that essentially does give you access to, you know, every bank that's on each network. And, you know, that's a, that's a bigger network and that can be attractive. And U.S. Bank would be an attractive uh, sort of correspondent partner for banks who are in wait and see mode. So, you know, right. that will take the pressure off those banks participating directly if you have a, a correspondent who can cross both networks. And of course, we have, as you mentioned it, Jonah, that we have the stablecoin, um, you know, development that's, that's that that's not sitting still. And we've got, I just actually interviewed on my podcast this week, it'll be out in about two and a half weeks, three weeks, um, the um, head of the USDF consortium, um, uh, Rob Morgan, who used to be with American Bankers Association. And so he's got, he had some really interesting things to say. So there is movement happening all around when it comes to, sort of instant settlement and instant payments. So just, it's going to be a fascinating next uh, 12 months on that on that uh, topic. So let's move on to Klarna, who reported their results. And they are still a private company, but they do report um, their financials in Sweden, which is their headquarters. And it was ugly. It was not good. So... They that last last year in the first six months of the year they lost 169 or US dollar equivalent of 169 million. This year they lost um, 581 million. So do the math there. That's like more than three times as much as a loss. Revenue grew though. Revenue grew 24. percent The thing that I thought was most interesting in this whole um, report was defaults. Um, you know, defaults were up 50 percent. 272 million US dollar equivalents. So, you know, that's that's what people are looking out on. I mean, just it's it's not an easy business to to make profits in, it seems. They these these companies are growing really fast. They've got, I mean, you're talking about a billion dollars basically of revenue in a quarter in a in a half, not a quarter, a half a year. That's that's a that's a sizable, sizable operation, but nowhere near profitability, it seems. John, what do you think? Um, I, the numbers were pretty staggering and I had to read the story three times to fully grasp, yeah. um, having that large of a network and activity and revenue growth, um, and to still see that huge of a loss, um, was startling. And I wa- I'm just hoping it doesn't put a chill into, uh, similar players and we don't see any kind of contraction of activity. Right. Right. Jonah? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's tough. I mean, it's a tough environment right now for BNPL generally, right? It's right. facing pressure from all sides. Um, you have a macro environment um, where, you know, consumers might be pulling back and facing constraints due to inflation or in, in the U.S. in particular, stimulus rolling off. And so you mentioned the default rates going up and, you know, we're seeing that across the board, in particular, lower end of the credit spectrum um, for consumers in the U.S. that the, the default rates are starting to tick up and not just not just off of their sort of all time lows and back towards pre-pandemic norms. But it looks like they're sort of, you know, going going back above those pre-pandemic uh, levels. So we're, you know, we're in that part of the, the cycle here and that's going to be tough on the credit side. The interest rate environment is makes it tough on the funding side for the BNPL players. 
And, you know, Klarna was one of these high growth fintech companies, uh, all of whom are trying to figure out how they, you know, continue to grow without burning too much money. And so they, they seem to have pulled back their burn rate quite a bit. Uh, the, the losses in the second quarter were a lot less than the losses in the first quarter. And, you mm -hmm. know, we'll see if they can continue to grow while pulling back on, uh, on, on the investment side. So it's a, it's a challenging environment. I think a lot was made of the fact that they, you know, raise money at a lower valuation. I think, you know, good that they raise money. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. You need it. So uh, we'll see if they can, if they can pull through this, uh, this phase of the cycle. Yep. Speaking of raising money, we're actually going to talk about a, a fundraise um, this week that was reported. This this wouldn't have even been a blip on the radar a year ago. It wouldn't have made the top 10 fundraisers, but it really sticks out as the biggest raise of the week that uh, is reported. Alloy. Um, the Alloy is the sort of, they started off in the you know, um, risk and identity verification space. They really, by all things, anti-fraud, basically. And... Um, they, so September last year, they closed $100 million at a $1.35 billion valuation. That's a pretty solid round in an in a environment that was really conducive to raising money. This year, I, we don't know when this closed. So it could have been February. It could have been April. We don't know exactly when. It was announced this week. They raised $52 million at a $1.55 billion valuation. So not a flat round, but an up round. And that is, uh, I think, an impressive feat. I actually, the, the CEO, they were in Denver um, last week for FinTech DevCon. I actually chatted with uh, uh, Tommy, the CEO there, over a beer. And he was uh, you know, he was obviously very bullish about his business. And you can, I, I can certainly see why. Um, they, you know, they seem to be doing great. They've got many many big names in fintech uh, as clients and uh, and uh, really just uh, i think seem to be executing really well and we now have an up round by a fintech company who'd have who'd have thunk it <laughs> well John? when that, when that story came up in the feed i actually had to double check the date right <laughs> Right. Make what sure year was that? make sure it wasn't sort of republished from like February or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's I guess it's not surprising with you know having going through all of our news sources every morning. We we've seen the variety of fraud related stories and hacks and and I'm sure that's piqued a lot of interest in in the average C suite. So this isn't that surprising. But I guess the thing that surprised me was that they've already reading through that story we are linking to, they still have a lot of money in the stocking. So I was a bit shocked yep. and impressed. Yep. Yeah, it's a, it's a good story. I mean, I've known Tommy and Laura since they were, you know, I think they had six people in the FinTech Innovation Lab in New York when I mentored them like six years mm -hmm. ago. So it's been a, been a great story to watch. And I think, um, you know, they really built a great business, proven themselves out in the FinTech space. They've got, you know, big bank clients now, they've expanded from sort of ID and verification into fraud. And there's plenty of other growth opportunities. And I suspect that that's, you know, what the capital raise is all about is how to, how to capitalize on those growth opportunities. Yep. Yep. Indeed. It's just good to see that, uh, you know, again, this is infrastructure. The, the, the FinTech info, FinTech infrastructure is uh, still, you know, I mean, that, that's the one sector that seems to be, doing the best in this uh, in these challenging times so 
Anyway, let's move on. We are now going to talk about an op-ed that we published this week from your company, Jonah. Um, and it was it's all about this uh, the interpretive rule from the CFPB that was from um, a few, it's like three weeks ago now, um, talking about uh, yeah, potential CFPB oversight of, um, it's all about digital advertisers. And obviously lots of fintechs are digital advertisers and uh um, there's all sorts of, uh, they're going to be over the CFPB are going to overseeing, um, anyone who's, who's doing their, who's, who's advertising online. And, uh, and it's going to be, uh, you know, a lot of these, a lot of the fintechs are not ready for this yet. So Jonah, this came out of your company. What, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, shout out to my amazing colleagues, Lauren and Sienna, who put this piece out. Um, you know, it's a great, uh, it's a great example of an area where, you know, people are trying to bring practices from the broader tech sector into financial services and realizing that it doesn't always translate that well. And I think a lot of the digital mar- marketing tactics are our prime example of that, um, where, you know, you really want to get as precise as you can in targeting your ads, for example. And there are real limits in financial services about how and on what basis you can do that. And, you know, a lot of the tools that have been made available historically through a lot of the ad platforms, uh, sort of most famously Facebook, you know, allowed you to target on the basis of factors like race, which um, uh, you're really not supposed to do in in financial services. So I think um, there's been a bit of a learning curve. I think it was interesting to see the CFPB actually come out with an interpretive rule here. Um, They didn't necessarily need to. Uh, but I think what, what they were looking to do was, you know, adopt a rule that set, you know, made it a little bit more clear just who was going to be in scope um, uh, in terms of being a service provider to financial institutions from, from, from a marketing perspective. And uh, as, as my colleagues point out in their piece, you know, the CFPB sort of named and shamed big tech in their, in their release. But um, this is really applicable to anybody who's engaged in digital marketing efforts on behalf of, uh, on behalf of financial services companies. So. Uh, a lot of people need to be paying attention to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. We've seen a few companies talk about their email marketing getting essentially blocked by their provider. And one in particular who used MailChimp essentially as a reaction to how they were targeting it and what they were saying in their messaging. So I think that should send a pretty good scare through most companies who are reliant upon that to drive a lot of their uh, engagement and growth mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah that was that was in the in the crypto space um which caused a huge uproar obviously in uh, in for many of the let's say the libertarian crypto folks um <laughs> so um anyway let's let's move on then to a crypto st- we haven't had a crypto story yet so this is we've gone five stories with no well peripheral mentions of crypto but uh, now we've got a, a meaty one from the wall street journal this week about tether i mean i tether is is just so interesting to me they they've been promising an audit of their holdings since 2017 5 years ago because this is a this is the largest stable coin by by um, capitalization or market value uh, in, in the world a us um, ust right or usdt can't remember I should, I should know that, but I can't remember the token symbol off the top of my head, but it's Tether, and it is a big deal, um, and they have not ever given uh, an audit, and they've given these sort of a, um, what do they call them, assessments or something, and uh, 
they have no one really knows they got apparently they have 5.6 billion dollars uh as of uh, last week of digital tokens got no idea that could be anything could be celsius tokens or could be could be luna we just don't know um so they they are now they've they're promising that it's going to happen soon not as fast as they want apparently but i don't know what they're waiting for it's just i just feel like it's just when you've got usdc um circles which which is very transparent about their holdings and you've got tether that is really um, not i you know, I, I know that um, maybe 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 it all be revealed and it's everything's above board but boy they've got a i think i think they've really got a lot of um you know they, they, they just i feel i don't trust them that's the personal that's my personal i shouldn't editorialize on a news show but uh you said what we were both thinking so yeah that's 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 my perspective yeah it's it's quite odd i mean you know what is the holdup here is just a gigantic question uh, yeah it, it, it really shouldn't be that hard to get an audit. If it's, if it's hard to get an auditor to sign off on it, that's, that's a problem. That's, if, that's a signal in and of itself. If, it, if it's hard for the auditor to actually conduct the audit, that's a problem. I mean, this should be pretty easy um, yeah. at the end of the day. Um, and so I, I think it is an issue. And I, you know, I, I, I may have mentioned this on, you know, previous podcasts I've done with you, but I, I continue to be surprised by the degree to which large chunks of the industry rely on, on tether and it may just be that they're locked in at this point and feel like they they have to use it until you know we sort of fully transitioned out of it in some in, in some respect but um but it's 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 really still a, a critical cog in, in in the machine for a lot of platforms and so forth so uh, we'll have to see where it goes but i i i agree i think um i i suspect over time there will be pressure certainly in the u.s to um you know move away from something like tether as a uh, as, as a, a sort of critical node in the, in the infrastructure, if you will. Yeah, I should point out it's USDT that is the is the symbol for Tether, not UST. I think that was uh, like Terra Luna or something. But anyway, or Terra. So, John, uh, I, I do have to give kudos to the Wall Street Journal for the best subhead of the week, which was Tether needs an audit that's akin to a corporate colonoscopy, which could explain <laughs> which could explain their reluctance to go through with it so and as they say about colonoscopies the prep is the hardest part so yes that's, yes having that done is akin that. to what they're experiencing there having done that once myself i can attest to that and i put it off <laughs> i put it off multiple years but uh, <laughs> other should be uh should be on board really okay let's let's move on um interesting one that um that I I didn't even I didn't see this. I'm sure you've probably been following this, Jonah. But uh, you know, California has passed the Digital Financial Assets Law. Um, it hasn't been signed yet by Governor Newsom, so it's not officially law yet. Um, and it's sort of some people say it's the California equivalent of the of the New York's bit license. Um, and the one thing that's interesting, and it's, and it's not going to come into effect for us until January of 2025. So we've got some. Companies have some time to to react, but the thing that was most interesting to me was that you you can only hold stable coins if they've been issued by a bank. And right now, I don't believe any bank is issuing stable coins, to my knowledge. But uh, some hope to. Obviously, the USDF consortium they hope to all be issuing them shortly. But um, yeah, maybe that's why they've chosen January twenty twenty five. But um, still, this is you know California putting uh, putting a stake in the ground, Jonah. 
Yeah, I mean, as I read the legislation, it's even broader than um, broader than stable coins. Um, but at the very least, as you know, it's, uh, it does put a stake in the ground. I mean, I think you can be registered with the California DFPI. Um, uh, you don't, it, 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 it's either be a bank or a register with California DFPI. And in that sense, is 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 a lot like a bit license, um, which creates a sort of bespoke uh, state level regime. I mean, for what it's worth, I you know, there was a lot of concern about the bit license, but it seems to have been relatively successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are something like 30 companies licensed in New York now. At least those are those are licensed crypto companies. Some of those operate with uh, trust company licenses in New York, but the vast majority of those have, have bit licenses. So it doesn't seem to have completely impeded progress in New York. I think the, the biggest challenge there is that, that DFS is sort of perpetually understaffed. <laughs> it takes right. them to process the application. So, you know, I... Remains to be seen whether, you know, simply registering with uh, with California and becoming licensed in California, uh, you know, is sort of sufficient to issue uh, a stablecoin there, um, sort of akin to money transmission licensing. And if that's what it amounts to, then I think it, it makes some sense. I, I don't exactly want unlicensed companies issuing stablecoins. So uh, we'll have to see how it's actually, how you know, what it actually means in practice. But uh, my my hunch is that it will turn out if it goes into law and, and it goes into effect, it will turn out not to have been that big a deal. But that that may, that's a bit of a leap of faith from where we stand today. Right, right. You know, it mirrors yeah, pointing out it mirrors. You know, there there are efforts at the federal level to create a federal regulatory regime for stablecoins, and at least as currently reported, um, a stablecoin issuer, at least of a payment stablecoin would have to register or become licensed really by the fed. And so that, that would effectively preempt all these state regulations. Right, exactly. And that in January, 2025, I mean, that's two and a half years away. It's quite likely. I, I would even say that there's federal cause stable coins seem to be the one thing that seems to have the most momentum at the federal level as far as legislation goes, but that's right. Yeah, so it may become a moot point eventually. Yeah. That's exactly where I was going to go, but I was also going to joke that you can have DeFi as long as it's CFI. seems to be (laughs) the skeptics are kind of their eyebrows are getting sore from being raised so often right right well we're going to we're going to end with a couple of stories on nfts and um you know nfts i i've they've sort of had had their moment um but there's a lot of there was a lot of hype and now things have crashed down to earth as far as valuations go but the technology I still think is really interesting. And you know, we've got Ticketmaster coming out this week, an article in TechCrunch talking about Ticketmaster are going to be using the Flow blockchain. That's F-L-O-W. Um, it's by Dapper Labs. Dapper Labs is the company behind NBA Top Shots, which is the NFT of NFTs of basketball highlights that uh, have done really well. So I, I really think that you've got you know, events like sports and um, you know, mu- you know, concerts these are sort of, you know, I still have a somewhere at my home um, a, a, a shoebox full of concert tickets from the 1980s and 90s. Um, and uh, I think it'd be great to have a digital representation of that. And it feels like that's something that, you know, particularly music fans, sports fans are so passionate. I can see them driving, driving adoption here. And this apparently the flow, flow was used um, for the Super Bowl. I didn't realize this. Um, 70,000 attendees at the Super Bowl got an NFT. Um, and, uh, so it's, it's, it's out there and, 
I know John, you're 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 an avid uh, uh, concert goer yourself. What are you, what are your thoughts on this? This is legitimately the first time I saw a story about NFTs and said, "Oh, okay." <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to seriously, why would I want to do that? This is and and as I just scored a ticket to Billy Joel in New York next week, so uh, bucket list item checked off. And I could see if I'm doing a bucket list concert, that's something I'd like to have a memento too that's unique to me. So this is real practical interest for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting. And I think this, uh, you know, Dapper Labs has done a great job of partnering with sports leagues and entertainment to, you know, find, um, you know, sort of pockets of, you know, really avid fans and, and, and dedicated people who, are going to be really attracted to something like this. And, and, and on, on their part, the leagues, you know, it, this seems like a perfect use case to drive sort of affinity and, um, and, and loyalty type programs through. And, you know, it, it is worth noting that the partnerships with, whether it's Ticketmaster, the NFL, the NBA, you know, they, there is this sort of centralized party behind it all right, right. Um, and so you're you're creating something that has you know it, there's there's a, some at some level there's value because it's you know the nba behind top shot um uh, or the nfl behind the super bowl ticket uh and i like to think that you know like like jack dorsey minted a, a an nft of his first tweet and that's great but like I could have done the same thing, but nobody would care, right? Nobody wants to buy an NFT of Jack Dorsey that I minted, right? But they want to buy Jack Dorsey's. And I think there's something to that. And I think uh, uh, Dapper Labs has, has sort of, for now, nailed the formula with their with their sports leagues um, uh, and, and sort of events-driven approach. Right, right. Of course, Ticketmaster will take 30% off the top of that. <laughs> <laughs> they have been known to be doing do that sort of thing, yes. But if it prevents, and I think this was mentioned in the story, I mean, if, if, it, if it prevents the secondary market from, you know, sort of, you know, I- I- exploiting, uh, exploiting further ticket sales for, you know, $2,000, then, uh, then maybe, that's a, maybe that's a good thing. So I, I do think there's something there in the tickets area. Maybe that's a good yep. thing. Yeah, and, and, the, and that's the thing. I mean, like now I'm, I've got, I got tickets to the Broncos game in a, in a couple of weeks, the home opener, and um, it's, you can't get a paper ticket. It's not, you're not allowed to have a paper ticket. Um, everyone there has to have an electronic ticket. So it's not much of a leap to go from there to an NFT yeah. uh, anyway. But um, last story, we've only got we've only got like, we're actually over time, but I just want to um, just touch base on Andreessen. They um, they want to standardize NFTs. They're creating like a, com- a creative commons license for NFTs. And uh, it's called the Can't Be Evil license. Um, the- <laughs> Details are available on GitHub, so you know maybe oh, maybe we'll see some standard standardization there. But anyway, we don't have time to chat about that. We are actually over time, so um, I would like to thank Jonah once again for joining us. Uh, John, great as always. And before we go, just a heads up: if you happen to be in London in October, we have our merge event. Where we'll be talking about all things Web three. Um, you know, basically the merge of Web3 and traditional finance. That's where the name comes from. Nothing to do with Ethereum. And um, and then we have our Latin American event in, in de- December. So fintechnexus.com for all the details there. With that, um, we'll be back same time next week. And uh, thank you, everybody, for watching or for listening. We'll have, have a great afternoon. See you, guys.
Thank you. See you.